0: Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 to 20 is our text this morning. We'll be looking at the subject of the Lord's rescue plan for wandering sheep. As you're turning there, let me just give you a little bit of reason why we're doing this this morning. I would much, much rather continue preaching in the gospel according to Mark, Uh, but we have some family business to take care of this morning, and it's quite honestly heartbreaking. Uh, There is a discipline issue which I will clarify a little bit more before we take the Lord's Supper together which is the sign of the new covenant and a reminder to us of our fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ and of our fellowship with one another as well. So I'll tell you more specifics about that in just a moment as it has sadly come to the point of what you'll see as step three in the church discipline process of telling it to the whole church. Uh, but uh, I'll, I'll keep the specifics a little bit more uh, concealed for now as we work our way through Matthew chapter 18. Uh, we have not had to do this since I've been pastor here, and uh, uh, none of the elders could remember the last time that Applegate Community Church has had to do this either. So we thought it would be helpful then if we walk through the Lord's instructions to us as a church body. If you've become a member since you've, since I've been here, then you have done this, though uh, passages always strike you a little bit differently when you, when you sort of need them. Uh, if you've become a member before I was here, I assume that you went through this process as well, and we just may have to, to shake the dust off a little bit. So if you would please follow along with me as I read Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, or more literally, shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we need your help. As a poor, weak sinner, I need your help. As a heartbroken pastor, I need your help. And as a church body who loves you and loves one another, we need your help. And the brother whom we will talk more specifically about later, Lord, needs your help and needs our help. We rejoice that you have not left us without any instructions. You've not left us to scratch our head wondering what we're supposed to do now, but you've told us exactly what we're supposed to do now. And you've told us that it's not for the purposes of ostracizing someone, but it's for the purposes of restoring someone. Lord, we want to gain our brother. So as we walk through this passage together as a family, the family of God, pray that you would be our teacher and you would help us, help us to have the wisdom we need, help us even to have the creativity that we need to gain our brother. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know it to be true that a family without discipline is doomed to fall apart. You think about, for instance, a family who did not rightly, of course, not in anger and in an unbiblical way, but rightly administer discipline to the children that the Lord entrusts them to raise up. Let's say the children are just sort of allowed to do whatever they want to do. You wanna paint on the walls? Absolutely, express your creativity. You wanna break our furniture? Hey, no problem, it's just stuff. You wanna eat a diet that consists entirely of candy? Who am I to stand in your way? Obviously, we know that simply will not work. It's the role and the responsibility of the family, of the parents, of mom and dad, to discipline a child, to raise a child in the discipline and admonition of the Lord so that they will know how they were meant to live. So that that child will one day, even if they choose not to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, will at the very least be a positive contribution to the world around them. Sadly, we see what happens when children are raised without proper discipline, chaos. Chaos and the exaltation of self that says, I can do whatever I want and be whatever I want and no one can tell me any different. We know what that looks like. But imagine, for instance, in that very same family, if, if a child who had, whose parents took the philosophy that we don't really discipline, we just sort of let them be who they are and let them blossom like a flower. Let's say a family took that perspective and that, particular flower child decided that they were going to run away from home, and maybe they were old enough to sort of understand the implications of that, but the reality is even when you leave the home as a child who's, you know, sort of graduated high school or whatever it is, you never know what it's like until you get out there. And so let's say that child who grew up in a home where the parents took a really hands-off approach and said, hey, whatever you want to do, we'll support you because we love you. That child decided, well, I want you to support me and love me through my running away. Initially, that child would probably have fun, right? When the desire for something like that is there, initially, at least, it's fun. It's a new adventure for that child, But it wouldn't take that child very long to understand that typically in the home that they've been in, someone feeds them. As soon as that child started to feel the pangs of hunger, they would realize, oh, wait a second, mom and dad aren't here to make me a bologna sandwich or something like that. It's probably something better than bologna, you know. It wouldn't take very long for that child to realize that it was not a good decision to run away from home. But if we were on the outside looking in on that particular family, would you assess that parenting, would you assess the way that those parents felt about their children and the way that they led their children to be a loving decision or something other than loving I think you know the answer to that. It would be entirely unloving. Indifference is not a lack of love, but it's actually the presence of hate. It would be the, it would be the equivalent of cutting life support off from someone who is desperately clinging to it. Now, As we think about the subject before us today and in this particular matter, I just want to tell you from the very beginning how thankful I am. Thankful because I know you love and believe the word of God. Thankful because I know you love the Lord. Thankful because I know you love one another. Thankful because I know that you want to follow what God's word says, even if it's difficult and painful and and sometimes makes you sad. So I'm so thankful However When we think about the subject of a family without discipline And a child who runs off We we carry those same principles over into God's family The church, the household of God And we understand that even within God's own family There is still a need for discipline There's a need for structure There's a need for order Why? Because God is holy And he's called his people to walk in the very same holiness that he himself is. And we understand that we won't do that perfectly. And that's why we praise God for a savior who was sacrificed for us and rose again from the grave. Because we understand that a part of our pursuit as sinners of holiness will mean confession of our sin and repentance. But what happens When a brother or a sister, one for seemingly whom Christ died, what happens when they decide they're going to run away from home? When they decide that they are not in sin because they hold a different opinion than you do about their circumstances? Are we to just let them go and say, well, it's not my business. You made your bed, you have to lie in it. Well, that would be the very same response of the parents who let a 10-year-old wander off on their own. Because of the love of Christ and because Paul tells us that the love of Christ controls us and compels us, we simply can't do that. And so Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, gives us our Lord's instructions for what to do When one of his little ones, in the context of Matthew 18, he calls them, wanders off. When one of his little ones, one of his flock, says that, I'm not concerned with what you say about the way I'm living. I disagree with your interpretation about what the Bible says about the way I'm living. This is making me happy, and I'm going to continue to do it. Love compels us then to initiate the Lord's plan to rescue his wandering sheep. It's a temptation for us to think something like this. We're just gonna have to let the Lord sort this one out. That's true. However, a proper follow-up question would be, well, how does the Lord sort this out? Matthew 18 tells us, the Lord sorts this out by engaging his flock, his people, the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, on a plan to rescue. It involves the church when a brother or a sister wanders off. And so as we think about what we are going to have to deal with in in a little bit here before we take the Lord's Supper, I thought it would be very helpful for us to remind ourselves of what it is that the Lord calls us to do when something like this happens. So let's look at Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. And here we're going to see a, a few things. We're going to see, first of all, what the goal of church discipline is, We'll see what the Lord's guidance for church discipline is. And then we will see what the grounds for church discipline is. In other words, what gives us the right to do what we are about to do? First of all, I want you to think with me about the goal of church discipline. I'm going to take the text out of order a little bit because Jesus, instead of initially beginning with the goal of church discipline, initially begins by laying out the scenario. And then as he lays out the scenario, tells us the goal. But I think as we think about this particular subject, I think it's most helpful if we keep the target in front of us, even as we think about the guidance that he gives us. You go to the shooting range and amateurs will just sort of shoot at anything that they see, not realizing that bullets fly a long way down range. But someone who is more professional, who thinks about things like gun safety, understands that what you need when you shoot is a target. And so what we need when we think about church discipline, first of all, is a target. What is it that we are trying to accomplish so that we don't veer off to one side and say, this is the way we go get them. And we tell them about how bad they are. And at the same time, so we don't veer off on the other direction and say, you know what, it's their business. Who are we to get into it? So what is the goal of church discipline well look with me at verse 15 of chapter 18 Jesus says if your brother sins against you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone if he listens to you you have gained your brother that's the goal the goal is not simply to point out the sin that's one of the practices that we use in church discipline but it's not the goal the goal is to gain a brother or a sister, is to, you might even think of that in another way, to win a brother or a sister, to restore a brother or a sister, to reconcile with a brother or a sister. The word that Jesus used here to gain a brother is a word that is also has, it be used in a, in a monetary setting. It can be used to think about if you find a $100 bill laying on the ground, you've now gained $100, right? And so implied in this whole scenario is the worth and the value of even one single Christian. Notice Jesus calls this person a brother, which in, in the mind of the original audience would have meant both brother and sister. So don't let it, don't let it confuse you. It's not, Jesus is not saying men are more valuable. Brothers are more valuable than sisters. No, that word brother includes sister in it. But he's using family language, isn't he? You know the value of your own family, don't you? Even if you may have some difficult family situations, you know the value that a family member has. Yet, what is it that gives a Christian value? You know the answer. In fact, I heard some of you just whisper it. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember what Paul reminds the Corinthians of when they are engaged in immorality? He reminds them that they are not their own, but they were bought with a price. You see, there's this redemption language here, this having been bought by Jesus. And Peter, when he thinks about the Lord Jesus and the sacrifice that he made, he calls it not just the blood of Jesus, but the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Let's say I gave you, it's not gonna happen, so don't count on it, but let's say I gave you a check for $10,000. And let's say it wouldn't bounce. It was a genuine check. Maybe it was a cashier's check or something like that. I gave you a check for $10,000 and you were so grateful and you folded it up and stuffed it in your pocket and then a couple days later you remembered, wait a minute, didn't I just get a check for $10,000? And you went looking for that check and it turns out it wasn't in the pocket that you put it in. Would you option A just say ah who cares or option B tear the house apart looking for that 10,000 dollar check i think you'd go with option B right is not the blood of jesus christ worth more than 10,000 dollars is not the soul of a brother or a sister worth more than 10,000 dollars so as we think about the, 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 the goal, the object, objective of church discipline, we need to begin with the right understanding that that person who has seemingly wandered away from the Lord and who will not acknowledge their own sin, that person, even though for whatever reason they're blind to the reality of it, that person is precious and valuable to the Lord. Look at the context that this falls into. Look back with me up at verse 10 of Matthew chapter 18. Jesus has been laying out for us what it is to be great in the kingdom of heaven. And and just like he did in Mark, he's been calling his disciples little children or little ones. He explains in verse 7 about the temptations to sin and pronounces a woe to those from whom temptations come. And then in verse 10, he tells the parable of the lost sheep, which we often use as as an evangelism passage. And it kind of is. But that's not really what Jesus is talking about so much. Because you'll notice that it goes right into church discipline. So follow along with me. Verse 10 of chapter 18. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. And then he says, If your brother sins against you. So Jesus has just painted a picture that he now tells us how to navigate. The the straying sheep is a picture of the Christian who says, I'm just going to live my way. And so this whole context is a context of great care. The father cares for this person. The son cares for this person. And therefore, the rest of the sheep also care for this person. And so when we think about church discipline, even though it rubs against everything that this culture tells us, we need to see it from a biblical perspective. If there's shame that's brought to the person, it's in order to gain the person. If there's embarrassment that's brought to the person, it's in order to gain the person. If there's conflict and confrontation that is taken to the person, it's in an effort to restore the person. Our, our sinful impulses in the, in the world has taught us to think, that's wrong, that makes me uncomfortable, I don't really like that. But it's what Jesus has told us to do. And in fact, that is actual love. It's not loving to let someone play by the railroad tracks unknowingly, it's not loving to let someone wander away from the Lord and then just act as though everything is fine. And so when we think about the goal of church discipline, it's to gain a brother. I love how James closes his book. James 5, 19 to 20, he says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of Of sins. That's the perspective. That's the goal. We want to bring the brother, we want to bring the sister back in order to save their soul from death and in order to cover a multitude of sins. We'll see a little bit later. And you're familiar with this because I warn you almost every month when Paul confronts the Corinthians about the way that they were taking the Lord's Supper, he flat out tells them, some of you are sick and some of you have died because you're taking the Lord's Supper while still in your sins. It is not the normal way of the Lord, but we see in scripture, sometimes the Lord will kill a Christian, in order to stop them from sinning, he'll call them home. We don't want that. And so that's why we need to keep the goal of church discipline in mind. And then secondly, let's think about the guidance for church discipline. And and now we'll start with the beginning of the passage. What guidance does the Lord give to us? What steps are we supposed to take? How are we supposed to do this? Well, beginning again in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, first of all, notice if your brother sins against you, if this happens, which Jesus knows is going to happen. If you find yourself to be in this scenario, then this is what you are supposed to do. Now, some of your Bibles read simply, if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault or go and rebuke him. There's a a textual variant in there. Some manuscripts, old manuscripts, simply read, if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault. And then other old manuscripts read, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. The the best honest, most honest answer we can give is we're not 100% sure if Jesus said if he sins in general or if he specifically sins against you. However, drop down to verse 21 Verse 21, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? So it seems implied in Peter's question that Jesus probably did say, if your brother sins against you. If so, then it's a, a specific, if you've been sinned against. If Jesus just left it very broad and said, if your brother sins, go and tell him his fault, well, then that expands our responsibility as a family, doesn't it? If I become a witness to a fellow brother sinning, then it's my obligation then to go to that brother and talk to them. Again, why? Well, because I'm better than my brother. No, no, that's not it. Well, because I I want to point out my brother's sin so that I can feel better about my own sin. No, 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 that's not it. Why? Because I want to gain my brother. I want to gain my sister. And so this is a a context where Jesus says, if this sin comes up, if you see a brother sin, then what you need to do is go and tell him his fault. So first of all, our, our first point of guidance, and you might say step number one, is to have a private confrontation, or you might even say a private conversation with that person. Verse 15 teaches us step number one, have a private conversation or confrontation with that person. How do we know it's supposed to be private? Well, he says, between you and him alone. That's what, uh, that's what the Lord's intention is. If, if I witness a sin, uh, and if that sin has been committed against me, then the responsibility falls on, on who to deal with that issue? Does it fall on the one who sinned? No. But of course, if they realize they have sinned, then of course it would fall on them. But notice, it's the offended party that takes the initiative. Now, where do you think Jesus got that idea? From God. Wasn't it, wasn't it you and me that sinned against God? And wasn't it God that initiated his rescue plan of the Lord Jesus? You see, this is just another way that the church reflects the gospel of Jesus Christ. The one who has been offended says, you know what? I love Jesus. I'm gonna obey Jesus. I have to do what Jesus told me to do. But it's also supposed to stay private. You don't go and tell everybody else about it see we have to avoid the temptation to gossip and even the the, the temptation to gossip while concealed neatly in a prayer request I just want you to you know there's a situation if you would just be willing to pray for it this is what happened so and so did this to me and I really don't know what to do about it and if you just you know I just want to let you know to pray about it I'm just thinking about it Oh, that, that's just as sinful. Proverbs 11:13 says, "Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered." Proverbs 20:19 says, "Whoever goes about slandering re- reveals secrets, therefore, do not associate with a simple babbler with the loose-lipped. The one who's always talking about everybody else's business. Proverbs 25, 9 to 10 says, Argue your case with your neighbor himself, and do not reveal another's secret, lest he who hears you bring shame upon you, and your ill reproot have no end. In other words, if you go and tell your neighbor's business to other people, someone's going to say, That person can't keep a secret. And you're going to get the label of a person who can't keep a secret. And then, everyone else but you is going to know you can't tell that person anything because they'll tell everybody else. Now we never see that happen, do we? It's a common temptation. Information is like a a tasty little treat. And the temptation is to share that tasty little treat with someone else but Jesus says it needs to stay private. And so we, we, we have this private confrontation, first of all. The word for go and tell him his fault is sometimes translated rebuke. It has the idea of explaining to the person what they've done wrong so that they will understand what it is. So this whole thing is implied to be done with humility and gentleness and patience. Because if the temptation to to have a conversation with the person in anger springs up, well then all of a sudden you're ignoring the log in your own eye and you're trying to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And so that's why... Paul tells us in Galatians chapter six, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping a close watch on yourself so that you too are not tempted. So when I go and tell the brother his fault, I I have a, a thought out plan to help them understand that this is the charge of sin that I see And this is why I see it. And most importantly, this is the scripture passage which I see it violating. It's easy to be offended, isn't it? Especially if you have a a, a more soft and sort of timid personality. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but it's easy to be offended when you have that type of personality, isn't it? Every little thing bothers you. You have to make sure that the every little thing that bothers you is actually a sin according to what God says is a sin. An offense can happen even if it's not a sin necessarily. And so we have to filter that through the lens of Scripture. And so Jesus says that's step number one. Go and tell them their fault, just you and them alone. But, and then he says, of course, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But then as a second step, Jesus gives us not just not just the private confrontation but he also presents to us the presence of witnesses in verse 16 he says but if he does not listen in other words if the if the one who is in sin says no i'm not i don't think you're right or if they say it maybe in a different way if they won't listen to you what do you do then do you drop the matter No, because you're still trying to gain your brother. So step two, take one or two others along with you. Why would you do that? That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So if the person doesn't listen to you, Jesus says take one or maybe two other people, and that's not necessarily a cap that you can only take two people, it's just a general principle of wisdom but it also corresponds with Deuteronomy 19.15 with the Old Testament judicial system and that's why Jesus says that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses because first of all you need to make sure that this is actually a legitimate charge what if you bring two or three witnesses and you're telling this person what you think is a sin against them and then the two or three witnesses say "No, hold on a minute I actually think you maybe were just a little too sensitive, or maybe, you, maybe you've misunderstood that. So the two or three witnesses can be a, a helpful correction, but also, and more likely, the two or three witnesses are there to be able to say, we've heard it, and we've seen the response with our own eyes. We can affirm that so-and-so, the one who went to the brother, is not making this up, but it's actually verifiably true. That's a protection for everyone so that false accusation doesn't spread. And so step number two requires the presence of witnesses and then step number three, we see the church's pursuit. Beginning of verse 17, Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to them, so the person is now persisting in their refusal to listen. Notice he's not just not listening, he's refusing to listen. If he refuses to listen to them, Tell it to the church. That might seem, in fact, I, let me take out the word might. That seems, when we think about it from a cultural perspective and not a biblical perspective, that seems really harsh. Personally, I like privacy. I like other people to mind their own business, and I like to mind my own business. In fact, It's just sort of a personal uh, characteristic of mine to not get myself involved in other people's business unless I absolutely have to. I'll often just say, you know what, I don't want to know anymore so that I don't get myself wrapped up in somebody else's business. But Jesus says, that's not the way to gain a sinning believer. Instead, it becomes a matter not just for the one offended and now for the one or two witnesses, but it becomes a matter for the entire church to take up. What does Jesus expect the whole church now to do? Well, the very same thing he expects that one person to do, to do anything necessary to gain the brother or the sister. So it would at least involve, number one, prayer. Oh Lord, open their eyes. Oh Lord, help them see their sin. Oh Lord, bring them to repentance. And then it would involve, secondly, pursuit. It's not enough just to know about it, but then we've got to go and do something. If the 99 are on the hill and the one is lost, what does the shepherd do? He goes and seeks out the lost. So if the church is aware that someone is lost, what do they do? They go and seek them out. And of course, there will be different ways that that is practically applied depending on a number of things, relationship to the person, uh, all of those sorts of things. But at the very least, the church could, in this day, send a text message, make a call, send a card, something that says, hey, we love you, We want you to come home. It can be as simple as that. But Jesus says, if the person won't listen to steps one and steps two, then you take it to step three and you tell the entire church. And then he continues, not just with the church's pursuit, but now with the church's perspective as a step four, what is the church supposed to do if the person won't listen? And if he refuses to listen, Even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The church now, if the person refuses to listen, is to treat that person and even to view that person. Notice, let him be to you. Consider him this way. See the person this way. As a what? As a Gentile and a tax collector. What was a Gentile? A Gentile was a person that was excluded from the people of God. Which is why Peter calls non-Christians in 1 Peter Gentiles. It is no longer has anything to do with your ethnic identity but it has everything to do with where you are in relation to Jesus Christ. In Christ or outside of Christ. What was a tax collector? Well a tax collector most often was a Jew Who had betrayed and turned his back on his people. So, how is the church supposed to view this person? Essentially, as someone who needs the gospel. No matter what they say they believe, their actions say something entirely different. It's so common today for us to think, well, they say they're a Christian. They say they believe in Jesus, but then when we look at the way that people live, that profession of faith ends up often being totally different than the way that they are actually living. And so most likely, if a brother is persisting in sin and the church says, hey, you need to repent of your sin and you need to come home to Jesus and to your family, and the person says, no, 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 I don't want to do that. Me and Jesus are just fine This is what Jesus wants for me. Sometimes that happens. And so the church is then to say, no, actually, you're not living like you're following Jesus. You can't hold on to your sin and hold on to the Savior all at the same time. And so uh, there are various things that the Apostle Paul says to emphasize what that means and to highlight what that means in 1 Corinthians 5 he said that the sinning brother was to be put out from among them, to put out of the fellowship, which is just another reason why church membership is so important. Because church membership puts the church's stamp of approval, the local church's stamp of approval on a person's profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Can a church see into the soul of someone and know with 100% confidence if they've been regenerated? No, So, what does a church do then? A church assesses their profession of faith in Jesus Christ and assesses their lifestyle as they walk out that faith. How can you put someone out of something they've never been brought into in the first place? And furthermore, is it our responsibility as Applegate Community Church? to step into the lives of someone in, say, Roosh Community Bible Church? I mean, maybe if they're a friend, someone that we love, and and you know them well and you have a good relationship, you might say, hey, what's going on? But it's the business of each local church to step into the lives of its own members who say, I'm not gonna do what God tells me to do. And so they're to be treated as someone who is in need of the gospel, put out of the fellowship, and most especially for us, for any church, what that means most specifically is that they can no longer participate in that. That is not just a little cracker and some grape juice, though it is. It's the sign of the new covenant. 1 Corinthians 10 says, it is the fellowship with which we share with Christ and with one another. That's the indicator that someone is in right standing with God. And so they're banned from the table of the Lord's fellowship. So Jesus says, have a private conversation with the sinner. If that doesn't work, take two or three others with you or one or two others with you. If that doesn't work, get the whole church involved. And if that doesn't work, put the person out of the fellowship of the church. Does that mean they can't attend anything? Well, the church may determine that. But I would say, let them come in and hear the gospel. They can't take the Lord's Supper Because we we don't want to affirm their fellowship with Jesus Christ because by their outward living, they have no fellowship with Jesus Christ. But let them hear the gospel. Let them be convicted of their sin. Let the Lord draw them back. And then we will throw a party when they return. So this is the guidance that Jesus gives us for church discipline. And then finally, let's think about the grounds for church discipline. In other words, this answers the question, what right do we, a bunch of fellow sinners, have to step into the life of a sinner who says, I'm not in sin? What gives us the right to do that? Jesus lays it out. Verse 18, he begins, first of all, by talking about the church's authority. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is a reference back to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, when he gave Peter the keys to the kingdom and then as an extension through Peter, the rest of the apostles, and as an extension through the rest of the apostles, each and every local church. What do keys do? Well, it's not hard. They open and close things, right? They lock and they unlock. So what does Jesus give to the church on earth? He gives the church on earth the authority and even the responsibility to say, as best we can, you're a Christian, you're not a Christian. What's this binding and this loosing language? The rabbis would use it all the time, and so Jesus' hearers were were totally used to hearing this. For us, what it means is that if a person persists in their sin, then the church has the authority to bind them in their sin, which means to to let them know they are not forgiven unless they repent of their sin. What does it mean to be loosed of that? Well, it means the exact opposite. The church has the authority to let a person know, because you have confessed your sin, because you have repented of your sin, you are forgiven. And I mentioned as I was reading the passage, it's a better translation. and In fact, I think some translations do this. And then the ESV, there's a little footnote at the bottom. It would be better translated to say, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. When we read that initially, we think, okay, so what the church does, binding or loosing, then heaven then does in correspondence with what the church does. But it's actually the other way around. What the church does has already happened in heaven. The church just affirms heaven's decision. Either to bind that person in their sin because they won't repent of their sin and believe the gospel, or to loose them from the consequences of their sin and from the, 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 free, uh, the free access of Satan to loose them from that and say, you have been brought back into the protection of the body of Christ because you have responded rightly to the gospel of Jesus Christ by confessing your sin and turning away. So when the church does this, it's already been done in heaven. It's not that we tie the Father's hands. We did it, Lord, so now you have to do it. No, no, no. The Lord says, this is what I do, and therefore this is what my church must do. So we see the the first grounds for church discipline is the church's authority. And then in verse 19 is the Father's approval. And verses 19 and 20 are some of the most misunderstood and taken out of context verses in all of the Bible. This is what gets slapped on every prayer meeting when nobody shows up except two or three people, right? Well, the church didn't show up, but there's two or three of us here and the Lord says, "Whatever whoever gathers in his name, he's with them." You know the good news about the presence of the Lord? He's always with you. Even if you were to be alone by yourself in a prison cell, he's there. This is an affirmation of the church's discipline process. And so verse 19 says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, where did Jesus get the two from in the context? The witnesses of verse 16, right? He's continuing to talk about church discipline. Jesus is saying, essentially, I know this is gonna be hard for you because you love that brother. You love that sister. But I want you to know that if you as a church body agree on that, then my father also agrees with you. It's the approval of the father that you have. In fact, you're just falling in line with what heaven has already decided. And then not only the father's approval, but verse 20, the presence of Jesus, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. I'm so glad that Jesus told us that. Because as we as elders have worked through this present church discipline process, I can tell you, I don't want to do it. In my flesh, I don't want to do it. It breaks my heart to do it. I will probably start crying very soon to do it. But Jesus promises his presence with us to say, now listen, you're gonna feel like you're doing the wrong thing, but I'm with you. I'm with you. And in fact, this is what you need to do in order to gain your brother. Because if you just let them go, then who's gonna tell them that they're wrong? And who's gonna go and seek out that one lost sheep? Who's gonna sacrifice in order for their brother or their sister to come back into the fold? And so Jesus tells us and assures us that he's with us In the process of church discipline and so we've seen the goal we've seen the guidance and we've seen the grounds for church discipline and I've told you already what this should involve prayer and pursuit prayer and pursuit pray that God would deliver the lost sinner Pray that God would bring the lost sinner back. Pray that God would use you in that process. Pray that God would open their hard hearts, open their blind eyes. We don't know if the person truly is a believer, though Jesus essentially says treat them like they're that until they show themselves not to be. Yet don't leave them in that position. Go get them for the glory of God. So pray and pursue in gentleness and in humility as a way to say, just like you would to a family member, brother, sister, we love you, come home. We're here, we'll accept you. Turn away at any point, even if it's 15 years down the road, and we will welcome you right back as if none of it ever happened. We will wipe the slate clean. Why? Because that's what the precious blood of Jesus does for us. And so, The subject of church discipline can be a hard one. Not can be a hard one. Let me just say it's a hard one. It really stinks, to be honest. Paul knew that just as much as Jesus, just as much as we do. And so when he wrote 1 Corinthians 5, which we read earlier about the man's sin, surely it must have broken his heart but in companionship to the, the rebuke of 1 Corinthians 5 is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Listen, this is about that very same man. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything that has been been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So the man repented. And then the church didn't know what to do with that. So Paul wrote him another letter and said, hey, your brother's home. Love him. Forgive him. Restore him. You've done enough. Now welcome him back into the family. And and why would we do that, Paul? Because I don't want you to be outwitted by Satan because you're aware of his schemes. You know what Satan likes to do. Satan loves to make you think that you're not forgiven in Jesus Christ. But that's a lie. And so church discipline is hard, but in the hardness, there's hope. Our hope springs eternal, we've sang. There's hope. Satan would want us to think that church discipline is mean But we will not be outwitted by him. Satan would want us to think that a person has the right to make their own choices, but we will not be outwitted by him. Satan would want us to think that once a confessing Christian chooses a life of sin, then that's the end of the story. But we will not be outwitted by him. There's always hope as long as the Savior is on the throne and there's breath in the sinner's lungs. Let me close us in prayer and then I want to tell you more specifically about what it is that we're doing here today. Heavenly Father, thank you for the guidance you've given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, O Lord. We pray in his name. Amen.